Good afternoon. It's Friday the 19th of January 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link today, uh, we have Ben Rubin, uh, Debbie Evans and Cheryl Granger. So uh, we will get straight on uh, and the world, it appears, has gone absolutely mad as all the uh, mentally ill gather in uh, Davos this week. Uh, we have exercise steadfast defender. Of course, we were talking about this on Monday. Uh, we mentioned the fact that the UK is sending 20,000 troops to take part in this NATO exercise. And this is the largest NATO exercise in decades. Uh, it's, they said, going to put new Allied defence plans into trial. Of course, this is all about Russia. Uh, 90,000 troops from all 31 allies and invitee Sweden uh, will train together in order to keep their people safe, they say, defend their territory and safeguard their shared values. Um, so let's just have a look at a little bit of video here. This is Admiral Rob Barr uh, speaking at the recent defence uh, uh, minister's meeting. Welcome to this 190th military committee in chiefs of defence session. The tectonic plates of power are shifting. And as a result, we face the most dangerous world in decades. NATO has entered into a new era of collective defense, and together we are defending much more than the physical safety of our one billion people and 31, soon to be 32, nations. We are defending freedom and democracy. So by creating war, they are defending freedom and democracy. This is brilliant stuff. Now, the 32nd member, of course, is going to be Ukraine. Um, so at Davos uh, a couple of days ago, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, well, he had this to say. Security is not longer regional. Security is global. So what happens in Asia matters for Europe, and what happens in Europe matters for uh, Asia. And therefore, of course, we don't regard China as an adversary, but, uh, well, uh, but China's uh, heavy investments in uh, modern military capabilities, including more and more advanced nuclear weapons. So while they're exercising about Russia, of course, China is there as well, and NATO expanding massively at the moment. Now, back in 2020, the NATO expansion shouldn't be a surprise to anybody who's been watching the UK column news because uh, we covered this in 2020. Uh, NATO launched its tw NATO 2030 policy document. This was all about, they said, making the alliance even stronger. This is about the expansion of the alliance outside of its normal remit, which is Europe uh, and into Asia as well. Now, at the time or uh, sometime later, um, a French retired general had this to say about uh, NATO 2030 policy. So let's uh, bring him on screen. This is retired uh, General uh, Gregoire uh, Diamantidis, uh, he's a former French Air Force general, and he said NATO 2030 sets out NATO's missions for the next 10 years. From the outset, it's evident that NATO is fully gearing itself towards a two-threat paradigm, a Russian menace, which presented as uh, already present, uh, and a Chinese menace presented as potential and yet to come. Two key vectors leap out from NATO 2030, this, uh, this NATO 2030 study. He said, first, the marshalling of Europeans against Chinese designs on planetary domination, the quid pro quo for which is US protection of Europe against the Russian threat. Second, the removal in several ways of NATO's previous cornerstone, the rule of consensus in decision making. 
Uh, and he went on to say, in reading through NATO 2030, what clearly emerges is a monument of quiet bad faith, surreptitious disinformation, and exploiting the Russian threat. Remember, this is a retired French general talking this. He's talking about NATO's behavior here. Uh, he goes on to say, they talk about a threat blatantly created and subsequently maintained to make European allies toe the US line in preparation for the looming struggle with China for global hegemony. Uh, he said, not only do you plan to transfer, transform defensive NATO into an offensive alliance against an enemy that is not Europe's enemy, and we've got to remember this issue of transforming defensive into in offensive, this is Britain's defense policy as well. Uh, he goes on to say, this report goes further, squarely heading for an organization where the world political ambition, that's NATO he's talking about, holding sway over all other international organizations, not content with having wrecked Europe's chance of a real lasting peace desired by all, NATO, motivated only by self-preservation and overreach, has triggered massive rearmament. And now through this NATO 2030 document, you seek to justify the military purpose of this alliance by transforming it into a political instrument that can even override United Nations resolutions and national sovereignty. Uh, this defies even elementary logic, which dictates that the mission should justify the tool and not vice versa. Didn't even the Romans say that soldiery must yield to statesmanship? So no, Mr. Secretary General, we must stop this mad train before it's too late. France should never go along with this adventure of accepting American tutelage of Europe without betraying General de Gaulle's principles. We must stop this mad train before it's too late. It's uh, absolutely clear now, as you'll see in a second, that the rhetoric is one of war and uh, we've got to stop it. So. Uh, let's uh, just remind ourselves about how NATO has been expanding. First of all, uh, let's have a look at this, uh, the joint statement on the trilateral United States-Japan Republic of Korea Indo-Pacific Dialogue. Uh, this uh, was January the 6th, 2024. Uh, so again, we've got expansion into Asia by NATO. Uh, then we've got uh, the, the potential for a NATO office in Japan. Now that seems to have been dropped in the short term, but that's certainly still uh, being talked about. We've already talked about the AUKUS partnership. This is uh, the United States, the UK, uh, and Australia, uh, and this uh, moving into Asia as well. And also the Quad, which brings in India and uh, Korea into this as well. So um, just to reinforce this then, uh, let's look at a quick, uh, another quick excerpt from Jens Stoltenberg's uh, presentation at uh, Davos a couple of days ago. Um, uh, uh, China's uh, uh, way of behavior, especially in the South China uh, Sea, uh, and the way China is actually violating core principles uh, uh, for NATO, uh, democracy, the, the rule of law, uh, uh, journalism, freedom of, of expression, as we have seen in Hong Kong, all of that matters for NATO. And uh, we also have to understand that uh, this is not uh, about NATO moving into Asia, but it's the, about the fact that China is coming closer to us. We see them in Africa, we see them in the Arctic, we see them trying to control a critical infrastructure. Not so many years ago, we had a big discussion about 5G. And, and, and many allies said this is only a commercial issue. No, it's, it's also an issue about our security. So China, China is coming closer to us, so we need to go uh, to war with China. Is, is it not a bit ironic that he's talking about criticizing China there for freedom of expression in Hong Kong at the same time that Western governments in the EU, the UK and the US are busy shutting down freedom of expression as quickly as they possibly can. It is quite incredible. Uh, in the meantime, and in parallel then, uh, Bilt published this 
uh, article and we'll do a quick translation of the headline. This was a couple, few days ago. Bundeswehr is preparing for Putin attack. Bildt knows this is the scenario. Tens of thousands of German soldiers would be deployed. Uh, and uh, so, you know, they were talking about uh, a path to conflict. Uh, they were talking about the various scenarios uh, being given, uh, ascribed to Russia, which were just ridiculous scenarios. But in the meantime, uh, absolutely pointing out uh, the ramping up of the war drums in Germany. Uh, and so uh, the mail decided to carry uh, a, an interview uh, with Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, the former commander uh, the, of the US Army in Europe. Uh, so let's just have a look at what he had to say. He said, the UK has always been aware of the threat from Russia. Well, actually, the UK has done a lot to create the threat from Russia. If there is a threat, certainly the threat that the UK claims there is uh, through the Integrity Initiative. And if you want to get some background on that, have, have a look at the uh, page on the UK Column website, a whole bunch of articles related to the Integrity Initiative and how the UK government has built this narrative, this anti-Russian narrative. Uh, Hodges went on to say, but now Germany is realizing that this is something that's only going to get worse if they're not prepared. So readiness is exactly what nations should be doing. And Germany is doing that. If the civilian leadership doesn't think there's a threat, they won't be able to move quickly enough. Our leaders should talk to us like adults, he said. It doesn't mean you're a scaremonger. It means you're taking precaution, which is exactly what we should be doing. Uh, in the meantime, uh, the UK getting together, because of course it's a hybrid war. It's not just about uh, real kinetic warfare. It's also about cyber warfare and information warfare and so on. So the UK has uh, decided to get closer to Japan with respect to cyber warfare again. So this is uh, on Wednesday. Oliver Dowden uh, meeting Japanese uh, to join together on cybersecurity issues. Uh, but the whole war drums rhetoric got particularly ridiculous in Sweden uh, this week uh, when they had their War of the Worlds moment. Uh, and the Swedish uh, Minister for Civil Defence in a public address said, it is time for Sweden to prepare for war. Uh, that was followed up by the uh, Prime Minister saying, be prepared to die in arms in defense of values. And as a result, uh, Sweden saw a massive uh, response from the public. Uh, they were going out buying uh, portable radios, they were going out buying torches, they were going out buying a whole bunch of other things for uh, preparation for war, clearing the shelves of it. Uh, there was such a backlash uh, to this that the uh, Prime Minister had to basically walk back from his original statement. So let's put this on screen. Uh, we'll do a quick translation of this as well. So the headline is uh, from uh, Omni here uh, that he said that all countries close to Russia will be affected. Uh, but he's basically saying uh, it's quite obvious that the risk of war has increased consider considerably. But he's saying that there's nothing to suggest that war is imminent. So the war drums are banging as hard as they possibly can at the moment. And the point here is we've all been warned. And the question is, are we going to sit back and wait for it to happen? Are we going to react like people of Sweden have reacted by going and buying the things that we think that we need because war is coming and there's nothing can be done to stop it? Uh, or are we going to basically tell these people that this position is unacceptable uh, and they need to come back from where they are at the moment? We are in a very dangerous position, but it's not one that's uh, un, uh, that it isn't possible to come back from. We've just got to make sure that our uh, position is well understood. Um, ben, let me bring you onto the program uh, and welcome you and say uh, 
you know, have you any thoughts about this? What, what do you think of, of uh, the rhetoric that we're seeing at the moment from these people? I mean, it beggars belief, really, doesn't it? Um, uh, the, the direction of travel, like we were talking about earlier, just feels like they're trying to drag us into another forever war. Um, the only upside I can see from this is that if we're going to wake up the younger generation, it's going to be them who end up dying on the battlefield. So I think that this will certainly pique their attention. That's what we can hope. Uh, okay. Let's move on, Debbie, to the MHRA, and uh, they had their board meeting again this week. Yes, they did. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. And two big events on one day, uh, Andrew Bridgen's excess deaths uh, debate and also the MHRA board meeting. So let's look at the MHRA board meeting before we welcome Cherilyn, who bravely queued in, in the ice to, to watch Andrew Bridgen's excess death debate. So the MHRA, before I detail... Um, some slides moving forward. You can see there that the board meeting was on Tuesday. I'd like to give you a little summary before I highlight a couple of things with a couple of slides. So I was delighted that 93 people were registered for the MHRA board meeting. Uh, apologies because I'm going to have to look at my notes because we're not allowed to take screenshots or film anymore. So I have to use my shorthand abilities. So my apologies. So 93 registered, 69 members of the public. Well done to everyone. 13 industry and nine members of staff were registered to watch. And before anybody asks, no, there was no mention of COVID-19 or vaccine injuries, and there was no appearance from anybody with regards to patient safety. Dr. Alison Cave gave her apologies. She was not there. The MHRA are deemed to be one agency. Perhaps we should call it the Bill and Melinda Gates Enabling Agency. Um, they announced they've got a £4.4 million surplus. They've had an increased trading income and decreased staff costs. So we've got £4.4 million sitting there that they're not quite sure what they're going to do with it. Clinical trials will be accelerated. They've cleared all the backlogs now and they're actually going to accelerate them even quicker to get approval within 60 days. And uh, we'll look at the O'Shaughnessy report in a minute because the public are involved in this. Um, they're talking about their roadmap of regulation and uh, into medical devices. So they're going to be regulating medical devices far more strictly now. They've got international recognition. They're very excited about that. They say they're going to be working with lots of other agencies. No, no mention as of yet of patient safety. They're also going to strengthen resilience in cybersecurity. Apparently, it's um, vulnerable, so they need to tighten things up. Now, the MHRA don't know that the experts are watching them in the board meeting, and one such expert, one of our wonderful viewers, is a health and safety expert. And there's more to come on this, and I'm going to do a blog, a special blog next week, an MHRA special. But the National Institute of Biological Standards Laboratory, which is MHRA's laboratory, has been inspected by the um, health and safety executive. Now, there are recommendations that have been made. Although they haven't received the report yet, there are recommendations that need to be made. And a question was asked at the end with regards to specialised animal pathogens and whether there was a trained safety officer on site and the answer was interesting. All of that in my blog. Job vacancies, they said they had a reduction. Well, according to their website, they have no job vacancies. Are staff concerns being heard? No, we don't think they are. Um, June Rain, uh, her USP 
for the MHRA is to streamline access to innovation. But she did agree that it was a debate for the board. Um, my USP, unique selling point for the MHRA, I'm afraid, would be patient safety, but still no mention of patient safety. Um, finally, I decided to check out the chat room function and see if they listened to any of the comments. And I asked for the, for the board members to stop using acronyms. This message was delivered to Graham Cook, the chair, immediately. And they didn't do a very good job of not mentioning acronyms, but they tried. Um, so if we just go on to the next slide now, because what June Rain did announce was that she was very pleased to be participating in partnership with the UK HSA to undergo surveillance for the people of Britain in case there was a polio outbreak. And there's a new polio vaccine, very keen to promote the vaccines to eradicate polio. This is the NOPV2 vaccine. Now, she also went to, on to say in her report, and this was one sentence, and I would please like people to take notice of this. She was talking about sodium valparate, otherwise known as diatsil, epilim, epicenter, or epival. So if you're on any of these uh, medications, please listen or pass the information to those that are. The dangers of sodium valparate have been known in pregnancy for a very long time, and learning disabilities and congenital defects get passed on from generation to generation. So pregnant women, well, nobody should be on valparate. But there is now a new study out to suggest that men can also pass on neurodevelopmental disorders if they are taking sodium valparate. And she, she made the point of saying that nobody should be on sodium valparate unless there was any other, any other, you know, if you're in a case of status epilepticus where you're having seizures all the time and there's nothing else available, then that can be used. But valparate is being used for mental health conditions, for behavioral conditions and bipolar as well as epilepsy. So really, that should be uh, front page news. They also talked about the O'Shaughnessy report, speeding up clinical trials. And you'll see there that I've underlined that um, this, this report is um, from Victoria Atkins. Um, our ability to deliver high quality research funded by medical research charities and UK taxpayers. So this is where your money's going into medical research. And finally, board meetings coming up. The next board meeting coming up, please book a date for your diary, is on Tuesday the 19th of March. Uh, so that's an overview of the MHRA board meeting. I'll do a full write-up in my blog, but I want to hand over now and welcome Cheryl Granger, who bravely uh, braved out the cold and uh, went to see Andrew Bridgen's excess death debate. Uh, welcome, Cheryl. Please give us your report. Um, thanks very much, uh, Debbie. Hello to everybody. Um, yes, I went to the um, Andrew Bridgen debate in Westminster Hall, as you can see us there, um, the trend in excess deaths. Uh, they only had 20 places for the public. Um, the rest had to watch on the screen. Um, Andrew did a very thorough, composed and focused presentation of the facts based on the evidence uh, and made a convincing case for a further three hour debate. He stated um, that he had enough signatures uh, in order to have had a three hour debate on that particular occasion, but we were given an hour and a half. The chair of the uh, meeting was Sir Gary Streeter. He made a lot of points. He's talked about the huge rise in excess deaths at a time when we would expect a deficit. He talked about high death rates in the younger age groups. He talked about alarm bells ringing uh, that we don't want to see. 
we're trying to ignore them. Um, we have seen bypassing of procedures and protocols and signs to inflict on the healthy population a brand new untested product, which these words. They talked about the inquiry being a, a whitewash, um, already set up uh, the answers that they want to get. They talked about excess deaths um, that uh, started in spring 2021 with the rollout of the jabs. Um, and these excess deaths have been increasing um, week by week for months. Um, also, the inadequacy of the compensation for anybody injured. Um, they mentioned Sir Chris Whitty and him coming out with the reason for all this was because of reduction in statins. Uh, which is not true. He states um, about excess cardiac deaths uh, were not caused by uh, COVID. And he talks about viral infections are seasonal and were already falling before we went into lockdown. Um, and the uh, fact that one in 800 doses have been assessed as leading to serious adverse events, um, repeating at each dose the same sort of risk. Um, the MHRA have released our health data to Big Pharma, um, but they will not release it to us. Um, and at his reckoning, trust in the NHS, media and politics um, will have to be rebuilt after all this. Um, he gave way to a Dr Luke Evans, and I'd like to play a bit of video now. That even though cardiovascular disease is multifactorial, the top of the list for, in the hierarchy of causes behind excess cardiac-related deaths has to be the experimental COVID mRNA vaccine until proven otherwise. And this is not speculative. No, I won't give way at this, but let me just finish this trial and I'll give way to the honourable gentleman. This is not speculative, but based on the highest level of data which combines plausible biological mechanism, randomised controlled trials, high-quality observational data, pharmacovigilance data, autopsy data, and clinical data. And those who choose not to acknowledge these cold, hard facts, cold, hard facts, Mr. Sagari, are either unaware of the evidence, willfully blind, or lack a conscience. I'll give way to the Honourable Gentleman. I'm very grateful to the member for giving way, and I'm grateful for him, uh, shining a spotlight on this important debate about excess deaths. But I'm just keen to understand the difference between co correlation and causation, because there's a correlation between eating ice cream and sunburn, but we don't necessarily assume the two are together. Yeah. It could be sunny weather. The same goes for this case. Is it to do with the fact it's lockdown? Is it to do with late presentation, access to the NHS? These are the key bits to try and understand the causation and correlation, to understand why these numbers are so high. I agree with the honourable gentleman. He is a medical doctor, so he does have some knowledge, clearly. Uh, but to correlation is not causation. But correlation is an alarm bell, Sir Gary. And alarm bells are going off all over the building, but no one wants to open the door and see if there's a, there's a, there's a fire. Um, so what I've uh, done is I've sent a text, um, sorry, a tweet to uh, Luke Evans to let him know that causation has been shown. So the Bradford Hill criteria um, is accepted by the WHO. Um, there are 10 criteria, and if you meet five, they accept causation. Um, we've got Jessica Rose um, very thoroughly examined the information and found out that um, the harm against the COVID-19 uh, vaccines matched 10 out of the 10 criteria. Um, so I've sent that to him, haven't had a reply. Um, and um, we've also got um, a 
a conversation on the right-hand side from the House of Commons, and you might have seen a video of this, and this was Dr Luke Evans talking to Matt Hancock um, about the um, uh, good death. What is a good death? A good death um, must be that we've got the right equipment, uh, the right medication, and the um, staff to actually do the uh, the necessary. Um, and they talked about the levels of midazolam. And that's perhaps something we can talk about more in extra. Um, but basically, there was a lot of midazolam bought, two years supply that was used up in a very short space of time. Um, so going on to the meeting, um, Andrew went on and quoted Professor Carl Hennigan and Azim Malhotra and Dr. Claire Craig. Um, and uh, Dr. Craig has actually waited too many months for answers to her questions over the production of full statistics from the UK HSA and the ICO. Um, he was also involved uh, many years ago in exposing the post office scandal right from the start. And he used that as an example of how long it takes to unravel a problem through government where no one wants to admit culpability. He also referenced thalidomide and the 11 years it took to actually uh, make any changes. And those changes, of course, were the introduction of the Medicines Act 1968, and that eventually gave us rise to the MHRA. So there were 24 MPs and two health ministers. Nine MPs were given three minutes each, uh, which wasn't long enough because the minutes, uh, ministers were given 10 minutes each. And these um, nine MPs uh, raised various aspects of this. They talked about the silence of the NHS. They talk about viral ways not being affected by lockdown and jabs, the safety of the vaccine postponed in the inquiry, serious concerns about falsifying and concealing data, the health service um, being concerned with only one disease for a long period of time, um, and then um, that they should take people seriously and find out why these excess deaths are occurring. Also, they talk, it, it, so, so one of them talked about schools all having defibrillators now, and perhaps that raises more questions than it actually answers. There was a, a Sir George Howarth um, who gave derisory uh, comments about the so-called experts from the last um, meeting that was held. Um, and one MP um, emphasised that excess deaths have only occurred since 2021 and 90% of them are not COVID-related. Uh, the Shadow Minister for Women's and Mental Health, Abina Opong-Aseri, um, apologies if I've not said that correctly, um, would not give way in explaining the opposition's thoughts. She spoke for a whole 10 minutes. She didn't answer the question and she stated the primary cause of excess mortality has, of course, been COVID-19. Um, and people I spoke to afterwards commented that her speech was factually incorrect and her delivery was shocking. And then we had Maria Caulfield, the MP um, Under Secretary of State for Women's and Mental Health, um, an ex-nurse, um, and she doesn't seem to have much more idea. Um, she said that we were uh, more vaxxed in the excess deaths because 93.7% of the population are jabbed. Um, and she also talked about the claims. They've had 8,000 claims, 159 have been awarded, so few. 156 of those are AstraZeneca. Um, and she also referred to the threats of um, reduced measles vaccine uh, uptake at the moment. So Andrew eventually was allowed to sum up. He was pleased at the gradual increased turnout of his colleagues um, and now believes he should have this three-hour parliamentary debate in the Commons, which he will apply for straight away because he's not letting this rest. 
And all I can say is for those who were vaccine injured, and there were some sitting with me in the um, public seating, it must be soul destroying to keep going to yet another session where you are on a conveyor belt of meetings where everything is rushed by the clock. Uh, and this is such an important topic, especially to them, that it demands more constructive debate, I'd suggest. Thank you um, so much, Cheryl, for doing that for us. And I, I would like to add, actually, that um, Cheryl did say to me that this is almost treated like a, a court um, because they're not anybody that goes. There were only 20 people allowed to attend. And all of those that attended, they weren't allowed to speak. They weren't allowed to gesture anybody, applaud, make any kind of noise. So it was pretty rigorous. But thank you very much indeed, Cheryl. And I know we'll be talking about more of that in Extra. Okay, Debbie and Cheryl, thank you very much for that. Ben, uh, let's bring you back on and let's uh, get on to the topic of Davos. Absolutely, yes. It's the start of the year. So the compromised, corrupt and criminally insane have descended on the World Economic Forum at Davos. Let's hear from Berg Brenda, the World Economic Forum president, about what is going to be going on this week. That order seems to know, know, uh, not be uh, the order anymore. We are on the way to a new order, so we are between orders. Uh, do you agree with that, or are there ways of uh, what are we able to keep on the positive side from the old order to bring into a new world order, and how can we avoid that that new world order uh, becomes like a jungle growing back, and we rather uh, have uh, order based on international law and the uh, principles that have brought us prosperity and uh, freedom uh, for decades. I guess and maybe this is the, the old um, kind of teacher in me coming out. I think of this a little bit more about a transition of eras rather than a transition of orders, but the two are kind of cousins of one another. The reason I draw the distinction is because I don't think the international order built after 1945 is getting replaced wholesale with some new order. Um, it will obviously evolve as it, as it has evolved multiple times over the decades since 1945. But I do think in a, in a more sharp and distinctive way, we are moving into a new era. And that's what I talked about in my remarks, that we are, you know, the post-Cold War era has come to a close. We're at the start of something new. We have the capacity to shape what that looks like. And at the heart of it will be many of the core principles and core institutions of the existing order, adapted uh, for the challenges that we face today. So that was Berger Brenda speaking with Jake Sullivan, the US National Security Advisor, a former Director of Policy for President Obama, former Chief of Staff to Hillary Clinton at the State Department, absolutely desperately trying not to talk about the new world order, which of course, as we all know, is a vicious, debunked, anti-Semitic, far-right conspiracy theory. I know that because it says so on Wikipedia. This is of, of unimpeachable provenance, and it absolutely has nothing to do with the end-time emergence of the Antichrist either. Uh, so they're up there going into bat for the status quo. So let's hear now from the High Priestess of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. Dear Klaus, let me go back to the number one concern of the Global Risk Report. Disinformation and misinformation. 
Tackling this has been our focus since the very beginning of my mandate. With our Digital Services Act, we defined the responsibilities of large internet platforms on the content they promote and propagate, a responsible to children and vulnerable groups targeted by hate speech, but also a responsibility to our societies as a whole. Because the boundary between online and offline is getting thinner and thinner. And the values we cherish offline should also be protected online. And this is even more important in this new era of generative AI. Now, the World Economic Forum Global Risk Report puts artificial intelligence as one of the top potential risks for the next decade. So disinformation is the top priority. It actually trumps climate change, which apparently is an existential risk to all of us. The tool that they're using to combat disinformation is regulation. It's all about protecting vulnerable groups from hate speech. We've got to quash vicious rumours about things like the New World Order, for example. Uh, also quashing rumours about uh, von der Leyen's refusal to release text messages between herself and Pfizer CEO Anthony Baller about the purchase of billions of euros of experimental gene therapies, the ones that Andrew Bridgen has just been talking about a moment ago. Uh, it's about stopping us from discussing the death from a heart attack of EU investigator Michelle Rabassi, who was looking into those text messages just before Christmas. It's probably about suppressing discussion of her own husband's extremely profitable pharmaceutical business built around mRNA technology. They're going to do it using AI. Uh, we didn't ask for artificial intelligence. It's being foisted on us. And actually, she wants to understand where that's coming from. She just needs to look at the audience at the World Economic Forum and all the people taking high-level meetings with politicians this week. So final clip, let's hear from Tedros at the World Health Organization. The other key in order to have better prepared and to address the disease X is the pandemic agreement. Mm -hmm. The pandemic agreement can bring all the experience, all the challenges that we have faced and all the solutions into one. And that agreement can help us to prepare for the future in, in a better way. Because this is about a common enemy. And without a shared response, starting from the preparedness, it, you know, we will face the same problem as, as, as COVID. And deadline for the pandemic agreement is May 2024. And member states are negotiating. This is between countries. Um, and I hope they will deliver uh, this pandemic agreement by that time, by on the deadline, because if this generation cannot do it, we're the lived community, we have the first-hand experience, I don't think the incoming generation, the next generation will do it. So for our children and grandchildren's sake, I think we have to convert all the lessons we have learned into this pandemic and prepare the world for, for, for the future, because this is a common global interest and national interest, very narrow national interest should not come into, into the way. Of course, national interest is natural, but it's the narrow national interest that could be difficult and affecting the negotiations even as, 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 as we speak.
So it's COVID all over again, basically. It's the same playbook. Uh, they're wargaming this thing called Disease X, which we've actually been talking about on the column for a couple of years now, but it's coming to increased prominence. It's been mentioned on the BBC a lot recently, and uh, they're going to uh, uh, fight back against Disease X, which apparently doesn't exist yet, but they're already building vaccines for it. But ignore that. Um, they're going to consolidate their global power and authority into this pandemic agreement, again, which we've talked about a lot on the show over the past few months. Uh, they're going to override national sovereignty in the name of these supposed global interests, i.e. their interests. And I think we should probably assume that this treaty is going to be ratified. Um, you know, we can draw attention to it, we can protest against it, but the grinding gear is of, of the bureaucracy are going to do what they're going to do. And I think they're going to be itching to take their new powers out for a test ride as soon as they're available to them, basically. So summer 2024 is going to be a hot one. I think we should expect to see some action this year. Um, much more on the World Economic Forum um, coming up and also probably next week as well. There's so much to get through, so many statements. And actually, it's still running. It's on today. And in fact, Tony Blair is arriving in Davos today to run a session called Recreating Trust. And I cannot wait to hear what he has to say about that. Indeed. Do you think uh, Ben, he's also there for his job interview for replacing Klaus? <laughs> uh, I think he's already in the door, isn't he? He's probably right. doing on the job training right now. He's, he's in the apprenticeship scheme. Yes, indeed. Right. Well, look, before we, uh, before we look at what uh, British government has been doing at Davos, uh, let's just uh, listen from another uh, favorite person, I'm sure, of all everybody that's watching this. We make sure that for all these vaccines, uh, that there's enough capacity, uh, that there's competition, so the prices keep going down. And we will have new vaccines. We'll have a, a TB vaccine, malaria vaccine, HIV vaccine, and even the things like COVID vaccines. We need to make them have longer duration, more coverage. Uh, and we're going to change instead of using a needle to use a little mm. patch. Uh, so the pandemic really highlighted that we've been underinvested in those innovations. And it, you know, our partners in India are, are part of how we're going to uh, get these breakthrough products done. So that's a bit more of what we've got to look forward to. Uh, let's uh, have, well, Jeremy Hunt decided to go. Uh, let's look at him. There he is. Uh, what was he doing there? He was uh, uh, very worried about various things, especially uh, AI and uh, life sciences, because Britain is going to become the great centre for life sciences uh, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, we're already a tech leader in Europe, apparently, with uh, the UK's tech industry worth three times as much as Germany's and twice as much as France's. That's brilliant. Uh, but uh, AI is, is a big driver of that. But the since the government has already announced multi-million pound investments for the life sciences industry, including 520 million over five years for uh, medicines manufacturing and 650 million for life science for growth package, uh, and this was all, of course, mentioned in the autumn statement last November. He was very excited about that, uh, but not the only uh, government minister there, uh, David Cameron there. Uh, here he is meeting Mr. Kaleba from Ukraine. Uh, and you can see he's looking very stern. They're very determined, uh, absolutely determined to make sure that we continue to support Ukraine to the death. Uh, uh, then, of course, uh, he was meeting uh, Antony Blinken. Um, and Samantha Parr as well. Uh, they were all there. Um, you'll notice they're wearing their Davos uh, 
their Davos badges. I just thought we would uh, zoom in a little bit on that. And that's what the badge looks like this year. Uh, it's a pretty simple thing. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe a few people might want to create their own badges for next year or something and, uh, and go over and see uh, what's going on from the inside. Okay, let's move on from Davos. Uh, if you like the UK column and what we do, uh, you can support us by going to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out there. That would be very much appreciated. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Um, Debbie, uh, what's in your latest blog? My latest blog is, sorry, I should have put titles up there, but pharmacists, uh, pharmacies, uh, jabs, medicines, Bill Gates, disease X, all those lovely things that you really want to know about. Excellent. Okay. Thank you, Debbie. And uh, Ben, let's come back then to a Davos related story. You talked about Davos House last week. I did, yes, absolutely. Oh, just on the passes, though, I think it's probably a little bit more complicated than, than, than just making a copy. I understand that you have to sign a deal in your own blood with Satan himself in order to get full access to the event. But anyway, uh, we did last week talk about Davos House, and Davos House is the, uh, the, the Davos outpost or Gold's House, which is the global propaganda hub for the UN Sustainable Development Goals, essentially. Uh, we spoke about some of the attendees. You can see here James Harding, who we mentioned, uh, the editor of uh, Tortoise, um, but also in particular the tapestry behind James Harding on the wall, which features what appears to be Satan, amongst other things. It's still there, I'm happy to say. So this photo is from Tuesday coming up, um, and we can see here Her Royal Highness Princess Eugenie, who is co-founder of the Anti-Slavery Collective. She's also on the steering group for Gold's House. We also have our former PM, Theresa May, who is now the chair of the Global Commission for Modern Slavery and Human Trafficking. Uh, also, Jose Manuel Barroso, chair of the board of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, largely funded by Bill Gates, who continues to giggle while talking about vaccines. What is that all about, Bill Gates? Anyway, so um, they had this meeting in this room about human trafficking. It was a roundtable discussion focused on the role of business and governments in tackling forced labour, modern slavery and human trafficking. That meeting was held in that room with that tapestry. Bear that in mind. So we discovered it was a live digging session last week. It was quite a lot of fun, actually. We discovered during the show that this is, in fact, Grayson Perry's Walthamstow tapestry. So thank you to Aki from the UK Column community for, for bringing that to our, to our attention. You can see it here hanging at the Fondazione Niccini in 2009. I hope I said that right. Um, and uh, that's a huge version of it. You can see there a second edition was created in a smaller format, which is 140 by 710 centimetres. And I think that that's this one here, which appears to be the version hanging in Davos House. And uh, you can see a much more detailed look of this at artsandculture.google.com. You go and search for the Walthamstow Tapestry and you can zoom in in really close detail and uh, see what is on there. This was created by uh, Sir Grayson Perry, CBE. He's quite a highfalutin chap in a dress. He's an English contemporary artist. He's known for his tapestries and cross-dressing and for dissecting British prejudices, fashions, and foibles. Um, he is an interesting character. Like I say, he came from a broken home. 
Uh, he was abused by his stepfather at a young age. He's spoken about having his first basically sadomasochistic sexual experience at the age of seven. It's you know, quite, a, quite a tragic story, actually. He was estranged from his mother. He didn't go to her funeral. When she died, his stepfather told him never to darken their doorstep again when he went off to university. So, you know, the art here on display, I think, comes from a place of significant trauma. Uh, but let's hear Grayson Perry talking about the tapestry. The kind of shopping trip of life, you know, <laughs> the kind of glossy, sort of meaningless trek from one department store to another. <laughs> you know, that is, that is uh, modern Western consumerism. And so we've got the seven ages of man, and then uh, you know, a plethora of familiar brands, some of which you know, perhaps look like they're meant to be under the thing that they're illustrating, and some not. And what's interesting is that they're all in the same font. And so when they're divorced from their product and their logo, all that is left is that emotional resonance of the brand and what they mean to us. So if I say to you EasyJet, some people think, great, it means I can go on holiday for cheap, and other people think nightmare. So it's like, I'm not being necessarily judgmental about any of these brands, but you know, there is a moral question to be asked about whether you know, the way that brands inveigle their way into our minds like the Normans invaded England. You know, so this is, you know, the modern Bayeux tapestry in some ways. It's about, it's about, our, it's about, it's about the subtle invasion of our emotional lives by brands. So a little bit of background from Perry there. I mean, he actually comes across quite well, very well spoken, very articulate and intelligent. Uh, but there's just something a little bit unusual about it. I mean, not least the way he's dressed and the content, right? I just can't work him out. Um, he's actually quite uh, on the money with his assessment of modern British life. He talks about the glossy, meaningless trek from one department store to another that is modern Western consumerism. I think we can all resonate with that, actually. He talks about the subtle invasion of our emotional lives by brands, right? You know, welcome to the World Economic Forum. That's what it's all about. Which brands? So these are the ones listed on the tapestry. Thank you to Biggles from the forum for taking the time to put this list together. And you can see here, there's a bunch of um, very well-known mainstream global corporations, basically. And, and uh, you know, those are the attendees at Davos. A lot of these organizations are uh, World Economic Forum partners. A lot of them are owned by organizations like BlackRock. They are run ultimately for the benefit of shareholders. They're there to make a profit. Um, and actually, interestingly, many of them use slave labor in their supply chains. So if you look at Apple, for example, they actually use forced labor in concentration camps in their supply chain. The irony of which I'm sure was in completely lost on Theresa May and Princess Eugenie and, uh, uh, as they held their little conference in that room earlier this week. Right? It's pretty hypocritical, really, isn't it? And we can see Nike's on there as well, for goodness sake. Um, so is this a critique? Like, what is Perry's role here? I don't really get it. Like I said, he comes across quite quite well. Some kind of court jester type figure, maybe, pointing out the absurdities of the global establishment while at the same time being always invited back to the party and giving knighthoods and CBEs and all of the gongs. Um, one of our viewers has quite a clear opinion on Perry. Thank you to Ned Artist Guna, who um, sent in this uh, rendition of the tapestry with Grace and Perry in front of it. Art for Davos, in it. Yeah, it's called Ugly Art by Ugly People. You can go check out Ned's uh, Substack. We'll put the link in the notes. And uh, his, his little opening paragraph here I love from my view of Clown World Continuum. 
Grayson sits alongside Stephen Fry, Chris Packham, David Attenborough, Brian Cox, both of them, the post boy scientist and the EU loving actor, Tracy Emin, the BBC front row show, Eddie Lizard, Blur, Lise Duquet, I think I'm saying that right, Emma Barnett, a long list of right on politically correct cultural Marxist, he is, and his ugly artwork are Davos. Cheers, Ned. That was great. Um, a couple of things to, to notice, uh, uh, just, to, just to wrap up. Um, there's, a, there, there's some patterns emerging here. I, I love this kind of stuff. So um, it, was, it was highlighted during the um, broadcast that this appears to be, that the content of the, of the tapestry appears to be an inversion, probably a deliberate inversion of Revelation 12, uh, where a war breaks out in heaven. Um, there are 17 verses in Revelation 12. Uh, Walthamstow, uh, the uh, area of East London after which the tapestry is named, its postcode is East 17. Yeah, and there are also 17 sustainable development goals. Right? Is this symbolism? Is this planned ahead of time? I don't know. In fact, was Perry even aware of this stuff while making the tapestry in 2009? The SDGs didn't appear until 2015. Right? So I don't know if this is coordinated, but I thought that that was an interesting thing to have a look at. Anyway, enough about that. Yes, and yes, thank you to Ned uh, from us as well. Uh, Debbie, let's come on to you then and the World Health Organization. Yeah, well, while everybody's been uh, looking at Davos, let's just check out the WHO, who are known to promote health, keep the world safe, and serving the vulnerable, and they're celebrating their 75th anniversary. But what else have they been doing? Well, they've been launching their 2024 emergency appeal. This was only launched on the 15th of January, so Tedros has been very busy. It was launched um, live-streamed. Now, I'm going to show you a little bit of the introduction. Tedros was there in person. He made a speech, but I wonder who you can guess had the begging bowl out and was actually promoting the launch. Let's have a look and see. May we now invite the Right Honourable Gordon Brown, WHO Ambassador for Global Health Financing and former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Today, I want to plead with donors to respond urgently to this emergency appeal to fund vaccines, drugs, treatments, equipment, and medical expertise. You know, hope dies when pharmacy shelves that should be stocked with drugs and treatments are bare, when doctors and nurses don't have the tools. Hope dies when they need to provide the most basic of care and cannot do so, and when vaccines that could save lives are hoarded in the rich north only to be destroyed as they pass the hues by dates. But hope comes alive if we can fund the medicines, provide the doctors, equip the health workers, avoid preventable deaths and suffering. So today I call on the governments listening to this conference today to fund this emergency appeal and support the WHO that is both the solutions and the means to deliver health to the most vulnerable. Did you feel the passion there? So let's have a look at their health appeal a little bit in, in a little bit more depth. So there's the front page. If we skip on, we can see Tedros and we can see Dr. Mike Ryan, who are putting out the plea they need donors. So basically, they want your money. But what are these humanitarian emergencies that we're talking about? So if you go into the document, you can see there waterborne, I won't mention them all, waterborne injury mortality, uh, pressure on health systems and healthcare facilities, mental and psychosocial impact. So you can see all of those things and more uh, mean a humanitarian um, emergency. However, we've got grade three 
health emergencies. So what are the grade threes? So the grade threes are in locations and you can see some of them there. Again, I'm not going to read them all out, but you've got Haiti, Occupied Palestine Territory, Syrian Arab Republic. And you've also got the Greater Horn of Africa there. And that's, of course, uh, at the moment where all the ships are having to, the container ships are having to go around the Horn of Africa because they can't get through the Suez Canal. So if we go and look at what are the, the disasters that are going to cause all of these diseases, we can see that the WHO are very much focusing on floods, droughts, storms, cyclones and wildfires. And because of those four subjects, you're going to get that impact of vector-borne diseases and waterborne diseases, etc. So what's their role in emergencies, the WHO's role? So their role is all of these things and more, detecting threats, assessing risks, acting as first responders. Uh, they are ever-present and ever-ready. But when you go and look into the health cluster that makes up WHO, and I'd urge you to screenshot this next shot because I had to zoom in because what you're seeing there is many mentions of many people, including the John Hopkins University, UNICEF, Public Health England, which is actually the UK HSA, the CDC, Harvard. They talk about their donors. But I have zoomed in and I have scrutinized that and I can see no reference to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who we know are the, I think it's the second or third biggest donor to the WHO. So that's been um, that's been erased. So keep an eye on the WHO. There's more, there's more happening than just WEF. Debbie, thank you very much. Uh, and we're going to end today, well, we've started in quite a dark place with uh, threats of war from the clown show at uh, Davos and other places. Uh, what can we do about it? Uh, let's just look at one uh, potential initiative. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I had a fantastic conversation uh, last week, I think it was, uh, with a gentleman called Glenn, who runs an organisation down in Cornwall called Seven Concerned Citizens, and I think everyone needs to hear about it. Um, so they've been set up to push back against the globalist agenda, specifically as it relates to net zero. So they're, they're talking here about averting a major planning catastrophe. And they've been going to local councils in Cornwall to question the decision-making process around the implementation of net zero policy. So just to give you the context again, so we know exactly what we're talking about, we're, we're all aware that there's a big global push to transition to a zero carbon economic system. It's being driven out of the UN. It's a big part of the sustainable development goals. It's completely inescapable at the moment. So um, uh, you can see this. Uh, amazing uh, article from Chatham House. Uh, they're really ratcheting up the fear. Nothing at all sensationalist about this image or this headline from November, which was part of the preamble running into COP28 in Dubai, which we talked about just before Christmas. Uh, but it's not just global. As ever, as above, so below, as they say, there's a big global message, but actually where the, the, the rubber meets the road is at a local level. And this is happening in the UK right now. It's in our backyard and it's certainly in your town hall. So this organisation, again, that we've talked about previously, backed by a billionaire, UK 100, has been building a, a body of local councils to implement net zero policies, to accelerate the implementation of those policies. Uh, there was some fantastic work done by the Together campaign to list out all of these councils and to draw awareness 
to what's happening. So I suggest taking a screen grab of that to see if yours is on there. Um, there's a bunch of biggies, Birmingham Council, Nottingham, Leeds, uh, as well as the ones down in Cornwall that um, seven concerned citizens have been focused upon. And basically, these councils have signed up to a completely undemocratic process. They're going to implement a bunch of policies against the best wishes and uh, the public, in uh, the, the best wishes of the public and against the public interest, essentially. So what is the issue? Well, the issue is this. The science, TM, around net zero and climate change is entirely being driven by the United Nations, right? And no dissenting voices are allowed to be heard. Right, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which is a UN body, is dictating what is and isn't true and what needs to happen on the ground everywhere globally. Right, it's completely inappropriate. This has been driving the agenda of COP. So we can see here Simon Steele, the head of the UN Climate Change Secretariat, the guy that was leading out COP, um, the, the main uh, spokesman for for that event before uh, the end of last year, says the seventh assessment cycle, so they've already done six, we're now on number seven, uh, they do them annually, the seventh assessment cycle of the IPCC must serve as a beacon guiding us towards solutions that are not only ambitious but also rooted in the scientific realities of, of our world, whilst at the same time obviously creating a three-quarter of a billion dollar, he didn't say this, I'm saying this, a three-quarter of a billion, a trillion dollar taxpayer-funded marketplace for global corporations and big consulting firms to make an absolute packet implementing these new completely untested and unproven technologies. I mean, it's extraordinarily dangerous and risky what they're doing. And also, importantly, the science isn't reliable. It's biased, right? So last summer, back in July, uh, the Clintel report was issued. And this came from 1,800 scientists, including Nobel Prize winners. And we can see from this report, it's a very short report, seven pages. I suggest you go and read it. It's very readable. And you can just see from the charts up on screen there that despite the fact that CEO levels do appear to be, CO2 levels do appear to be increasing, climate-related deaths are actually going down quite significantly over the past 100 years, right? This is, is not a pressing issue in terms of human, human life. And all of the future projections, just like COVID, all of the future projections that um, the IPCC has been relying on are based on computer models. So they are massively open to manipulation, right? They are incredibly misleading. You can make tiny assumptions and tiny introductions into the data about what we think is going to happen in the future that will have an incredible impact on uh, what, what the models say, right? You can really get them to, to do whatever you want, right? So it, 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 it's a very manipulative way of uh, presenting science. So a little quote here from the report, um, for example, think of the many wrong predictions by economic models or think of the large mistakes in recent pandemic modeling. The output of the computer models depends fully on the assumptions that model makers put into them. In the past 50 years, the predictions of climate models about global warming and their dire effects have all been wrong. Yeah? They have all been wrong. In the engineering community, they would be qualified as useless, right? But these useless models are being used by politicians and activists to terrorize people. Yeah? So if we look at this recent article from The Guardian, uh, these predictions from the IPCC were used to create a computer simulation of what high tide would look like imbued in Cornwall. So on the left, we have the 2020 uh, average high tide levels. 
And then on the right, we have 20 to 50. And you can see a whole bunch of infrastructure there has been completely wiped out based on these predictions. And they've used this. And it's not just in Cornwall. That's a local example. But it's happening absolutely everywhere globally, right? This information is being used to manipulate citizens into going along with a whole bunch of climate-related activities, transformations of their way of life, the economic system that surrounds them that they would not have agreed to if they hadn't been lied to by these citizens and uh, by, by these activists and by these politicians. And, and they're also using this, as I've spoken about previously, as a way to bring in things like citizens' assemblies and sortition to make decisions around climate policy. This whole thing is, is absolutely corrupt. And then into this mix, step seven concerned citizens, because they want to sort this out. Good on them. Right. And uh, in their introduction, they say here that it's an independent citizen run effort uh, to support and work with councils, their officers and our wider community in order to avert a major catastrophe associated with emergency planning and declared emergencies. Right. And essentially what they're pointing out is that local councils, which are basically set up to take your bins out. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's uh, you know, more or less what, what they're there to do or, or activities of similar complexity are not fit for purpose when it comes to making big strategic decisions about highly contentious advanced climate models that they don't understand, right? It, it's complete nonsense. Um, and they're doing fantastic work. Uh, they're, they're here to point out the system isn't fit for purpose. They've been working with good people inside the councils, like there are good people inside the councils. That's really important for us to understand. And they're basically using the bureaucracy and the system against itself Last year, they started off by um, presenting. They did five presentations to four officers of the, uh, officers of the council talking about um, the, the proposed climate emergency action plan, the implications of the plan for the region, businesses and the citizens, uh, the fact that council planning systems are not fit for purpose, the pragmatism of the policy and the nature of the scientific information, its provenance and where it came from. They organised a protest. So they had 200 concerned citizens, the seven coordinated 200 to go outside the council offices, do a protest. Uh, it was uh, roundly ignored. They escalated this to the CEO of Torbay Council and the head auditor. All right, this is really important. This is about assurance. It's about audit. It's about the structural integrity of these organizations, right? Uh, that they, they have a duty to respond to information that has been that is said to them in the correct fashion. Right. So they escalated to the CEO. They sent full freedom of information requests. Uh, if we just nip back one, actually, sorry. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the, they then reviewed that information. So you can see the process that, that, that took place through last year. And then uh, they were told by the council. They actually received a message from the council saying that we have nothing more to discuss with you. And they've then consolidated all of that into a fifth letter which uh, captures all of the findings and recommendations. And um, the summary here, which you can see, is uh, essentially that it, the council is not fit for the purpose of conducting emergency planning and execution. The present organization system left uncorrected poses a significant, elevated and imminent threat of harm to the well-being of the region and its people. The likely impacts, risks and unintended consequences arising from the policies and strategies being developed through the current organization system will have catastrophic implications lasting for generations. Right? Now, that is an absolute nightmare for if you're the CEO of a council or the chief auditor of a council, that's 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 that is the stuff of nightmares, right? That is, this is kryptonite to the bureaucracy. Uh, and I think that um, although it is a bit dry, it's procedural, it's technical, it's bureaucratic, 
this might work. I think that, well, they're clearly already getting traction. Uh, I think that the Torbay and Cornwall councils have got a fight on their hand. They've got some big questions that need to be answered about the decisions that they've made and the process that they've used to arrive at those decisions. And importantly, I think that there is a template here for national action that we've been talking about a lot on the show. And I'm excited to see how this develops over the coming months. Okay, brilliant, Ben. Thank you very much for that. Well, we've got to leave it there for today, perhaps on a bit of good news. Uh, uh, We will be back in a couple of minutes for some extra. We'll discuss these issues a bit more. Uh, If you aren't able to join us for that, uh, we'll be back at 1pm as usual on uh, Monday. Have a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.